Friends, if you have your Bible, please turn with me to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10, verses 30, 25 to 37 is what we're looking at today. Uh, for the first two weeks of March, we spent it considering the core value of global missions. And starting this week and next week, we are looking at the core value of mercy and justice. And the reason that we spend uh, a whole month focusing on these two core values is because we want to make sure we're on the same page as God. That the things that burden God's heart are the things that burden our hearts as well. The things that are close to God's heart are close to our hearts as well. And as the scriptures make clear, uh, global missions and mercy and justice are two among many of those such things. And so with that, we're looking at Luke 10. Would you stand with me as your act of worship for the reading and receiving of God's holy word as we give it now our fullest attention, Luke 10, beginning with verse 25. Hear now the reading of God's word. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your might, mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you've answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he desiring to justify himself said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he, had came, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he sent him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, excuse me, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Friends, would you join me in prayer once more? God, we ask your blessing upon now the preaching of your word. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would give to us eyes to see deep truths in it. Um, but Holy Spirit, more than just seeing, uh, give us a heart to understand, to receive, and to be transformed so that we would be obedient to what you have revealed in your scriptures. We pray, Lord, that more than just obedience, though, you would open our eyes to see and behold the glory of Jesus and that even in today's worship and the hearing of your word, uh, we would continue to give you praise and honor. And we pray that, God, by your spirit, you would do this today, this spiritual work in your people, whether they, we are gathered here together or at home. Lord, bless our time now, we pray, and we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, most churches have all different kinds of teams and committees doing different ministries. Uh, here at our church, we have a praise team, uh, we have a welcome team, we have mercy committees, mission committees, we have all different kinds of committees, teams doing ministry. And these are so vital to the nature of the ministry of the church, the life of the church. Um, but there is sometimes an unfortunate, unforeseen consequence of having teams and committees. And that's that Christians, members forget that all Christians are called to all of these things. It's not only those who are on the welcome team that are called to welcome those, it's everybody. It's not only uh, those who are on the praise team that are called to praise God, we are all called to be worshipers. 
It's not all the, only those on the mission committee that are called to participate and partake in missions, but all Christians. And in the same way, although we have a mercy committee, it is every disciple of Jesus who is responsible to engage in acts of mercy and justice. And that means that when Jesus says to this religious lawyer at the end of our story, he says, you go and do likewise, that is a command for us. It's my goal, my hope that what we understand by the end of today's time is that mercy and justice are not just optional components of the Christian life. Mercy and justice are not aspects of the Christian life that you level up to or you achieve or you reach. Sometimes we often think of Christian maturity as I need to grow in some of the basics for faith and repentance, prayer and word. And then as I continue to mature as a Christian, then things like mercy and justice become important. Then things like global missions become important. But you must understand mercy and justice, global mission, these are foundational core aspects of the Christian life. They're elementary. A a call to follow after Jesus as Lord and Savior is a call to walk in the path of mercy and justice, that the burdens of the Lord become our burdens. And so here's our gospel truth this morning. Glorious mercy received in Christ spurs generous mercy toward others. Let me say that one more time. Glorious mercy received in Christ, it spurs, it generates, it creates generous mercy toward others. And as we look at this gospel truth, I have two points for us, two points I want us to focus on. The first is this. Mercy is a tangible way of loving your neighbor by meeting felt needs through deeds. And mercy is a tangible way of loving your neighbor by meeting felt needs through deeds. And then secondly, mercy is the mark of a true Christian who has been shown mercy in Christ. Mercy is the mark of a true Christian who has been shown mercy in Christ. And so if we could have this up here a little bit longer, I know some people are are taking notes right now and the points are a little bit longer than usual. Uh, So let's begin with this first one. Mercy is a tangible way of loving your neighbor um, by meeting felt needs through deeds. Let me just kind of highlight what's going on in this passage. The passage begins with a religious lawyer, not a lawyer of the law, but a religious lawyer coming to Jesus and he's testing Jesus. He, he wants to put Jesus into a trap. And so he asks this question in verse 25, teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, Jesus can sense a trap being laid out for him a mile away. And so Jesus begins to turn the tables and he begins to set his own trap. You don't tango with Jesus. So he answers this man's question with another question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? And of course, the lawyer now is forced with this question and he answers, well, the law of the Lord is summarized in two commands, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. And he's frustrated. Okay, that trap didn't work. Jesus schooled me. Okay, let me recalibrate and start again. So he asks another question. He's trying to trap him again. Verse 29, and who is my neighbor? And Jesus, again, sensing it, doesn't get fooled. And he responds by asking another question. But this time, The question comes after a long parable. So Jesus tells the parable of the Samaritan. And then in verse 36, he asks this question, which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? And of course, at this point, the lawyer is forced to answer the question. Verse 37, the one who showed him mercy. And so the whole dynamic is interesting. The man comes to the question. Jesus asks another question. The man responds. Then the man says, okay, okay, that didn't work. Let me try this again. He asks another question. Jesus asks another question. He responds. And Jesus 
turns this lawyer into a student. He gives him a lesson on mercy. Now, it's really interesting because remember how this whole encounter began. It began with the question, who is my neighbor? Who's the neighbor I'm called to love? And Jesus ends with a parable on mercy, showing that there's a link between neighborly love and showing mercy. And that link is this, showing mercy is a tangible expression of neighborly love. Or put another way, neighborly love is at the heart of mercy. But this attitude of neighborly love, this heart of mercy is not just one that you feel inside. It's not an emotion, nor simply a conviction, nor simply a thought in the head. It must be tangible and concrete. It's a tangible display of neighborly love. And so the parable then puts flesh on the bones. The parable is meant to show us what that mercy looks like. And so let's actually examine the parable um, by taking it, just kind of going and marching down through it. The story begins with a man, uh, a Jew, leaving Jerusalem, and he's headed down the Jericho path. Now, this was about a 17-mile path that descended thousands of feet from above sea level to a little bit below it. And the Jericho path was one that was uh, curvy, it was windy, it was rocky. And so it was a very dangerous road because there were all of these caves by which um, robbers, thieves, Men with bad intentions could hide and come out and surprise people, ambush them, mug them, steal from them. In fact, uh, that road, the Jericho Road, was often called the Way of Blood or the Pass of Blood. That's how dangerous it was. And so these men jump out at this man returning from Jerusalem. And not only do they mug him, but they beat him and they leave him for dead. Now, I just want you to notice at this point, when Jesus is telling this parable, he presents the man's predicament, the man's situation, only in terms of his physical needs, only in terms of um, what, he, what has happened to him physically and what he needs physically. So, so the man is left, he's left wounded, right? He's left naked. He's left deserted. That's the problem. That's the main issue of the story. Nothing more than that. So Jesus then presents three characters, three men who one by one come across this man. And so uh, the first man we're told in verse 31 Now pay attention to the way that Jesus sets up these words. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road. And when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. He saw him and by on the other side. Then the second man, verse 32. So likewise, a Levite, when he came down to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, just really quickly, what is the difference between a priest and a Levite? Well, they were both religious figures They both had uh, a part, a role in the temple, in the sacrificial system, except the Levites were more of a general group. Now, uh, the way way I heard it uh, said by by one pastor was that um, the priests are like the varsity temple guys, and um, the Levites are like the JV temple guys. Uh, And then he went on to say, and I thought this was hilarious, he said, uh, what a Levite is to a priest is what a mall cop is to an actual police officer. Now, the point simply is that both are involved in the temple. Uh, Both are religious figures. Both are religious servants. And yet they both have the same uh, reaction to one of their own in need. It says they saw him and then passed by on the other side. They were clearly ignoring the need in front of them. Now, it's really easy for us to judge and to um, quickly take the moral high ground and say, how could they do such a thing? 
but it's really not that difficult for us to understand why they did what they did. You know, consider again how dangerous this pass was. It was called the pass of blood. There was a man who had been mugged on this, wi- uh, this windy, curvy, rocky road. So what was to stop the very men who mugged this guy to be hiding in the caves waiting for you to stop by, help him, and then come and mug you? What if they had laid him out as bait? What if he really wasn't mugged? What if he was one of their own just pretending to be mugged to stop any compassionate passerby? When something is dangerous, you walk by quicker. You know, I, I don't think it's very hard for us to, to imagine that. We live uh, not too far from Philadelphia. Imagine that in the dead of night, for some reason, you find yourself at 3 a.m. walking in the city. You get lost and you end up in an alley and you have no idea where you are and you hear an uh, and, you, and you kind of, what do you do? What do you naturally do? You stop and you go, where's that coming from? Who can I help? You naturally Put your hand in your pocket. What I do, I grab my keys. Right? Keys become a weapon in times of, of fear. And you, let's say you're walking, and you see a man in tattered clothing, crying out, groaning, blood all over his face, and you have no idea what's going on. It's 3 a.m. in the morning. Is it really difficult to imagine that you would quicken your pace just a little faster? You see, I don't think that we can judge these men so easily. But then also consider the second reason. Remember the priest and the Levite, their jobs were to be involved in temple proceedings with work in the temple. What if this man is dead? Because he's lifeless. He's, he's laying still. What if he's dead? If I go and I touch him and he's dead, then what? Then I'm unclean. I'm impure. But my job is to work in the temple. And so now I will be contaminated. You see, actually in Numbers 19, um, the Old Testament laws were very clear. It says, whoever touches the dead body of any person shall be unclean seven days. And so they're risking by touching him to be contaminated. And therefore, they can't do their job. And then therefore, they have to be unclean seven days. They'll be quarantined seven days. Now, if anything, this story relates to us today. We are taking such precaution, not seven days, we're taking 14 days of quarantine. And out of fear of getting sick, we avoid anybody with flu-like symptoms. You know, I'm trying my best to not cough in, in the fear that some of you don't get up and leave thinking I have some virus or something. We've, we stay clear from those who are sick. Why? Because we don't want to risk being contaminated. That's why we set up the live stream. That's why churches in many places throughout the country are doing the same. We want to minimize the possibility of exposure. And so there is no way that any of us could not understand exactly what this priest and this Levite were thinking when they see a man and they're going, there is no way I'm getting near him. We can sympathize so much more with them than we can with this Samaritan. Because Jesus then tells us about a third man, Verse 33 says this, but a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was. And when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds. And Jesus intentionally sets up the structure. The priest saw him and passed by on the other side. The Levite saw him and passed by on the other side. The Samaritan saw him and he went to him. He went in because he was filled with compassion. What is that? That's neighborly love filled with mercy. And as a result of that merciful, neighborly love, compassionate heart, he draws near to him, not away from him. The question is, what did the Samaritans see that the other people seemed to have missed? 
Now, remember the context of this story. Jesus is telling it to a, a religious leader, right? Religi- uh, sorry, a religious lawyer, a Jewish man. And so the man, you know, sometimes someone's telling a story and you kind of go, okay, I know where you're going with this. I know where this is going. This lawyer would have said, oh, I know where you're going. There's a man, there's a Jewish man who's half beaten on the road and there's a Samaritan walking by. I know what's going to happen. And he thinks that he knows what the Samaritan would have seen because, of course, Samaritans and Jews were enemies. They had a long history of hatred toward one another that really was more one-sided than the other way. It was the Jews who particularly hated, rejected, and despised the Samaritans. In fact, in that story, remember that lady calls herself a dog because the Jews viewed the Samaritans like dogs, treated them like dogs, right? And that needs to be translated in our culture because when we think of dogs, we, you know, we treat dogs like royalty. Our dogs eat better sometimes than I do. But at the time, dogs were treated with, as, as scum, as unclean. And so the lawyer is probably hearing this story and go, oh, I know what the Samaritan's going to do. The Samaritan's walking down. He sees this, this, you know, this, this Jewish man on the floor. What, what would you do? A hated enemy? You'd walk over there. You'd look around. You'd kick him a few more times. You'd spin on him. And then you'd run away. The Samarit- and, the, and the religious lawyer's going, oh, I know what he would do. But it's not what he does at all. Because when the Samaritan man sees the Jewish man, he doesn't see an enemy. What does he see? He sees a person. He sees a person in need. You see, to the Samaritan, it didn't matter what skin color the man was. It didn't matter what language he spoke. It didn't matter where he was from. It didn't matter what religion he believed in. It didn't matter if they agreed or saw um, along the same political decisions and policies and parties. None of that mattered. What the Samaritan saw was a man in need. And that's so different than what the Levites saw, than what the priests saw. Because surely the priest and the Levite saw something, but what did they see? They did not see a person. They saw the body. And when they saw that body, they saw an inconvenience. They saw somebody unclean. They saw a nuisance. They saw a threat to their safety. They saw danger. And because that's all they saw, it was easy for them to cross to the other side and keep going along with their day. But this Samaritan, he had a different heart. He had a compassionate heart. Heart. And friends, it teaches us something right there about mercy. Mercy begins with seeing people as people, as image bearers of God first and foremost. You know, when you see people in need, various shapes and sizes, what do you see? You know, sometimes we see, we don't see people, we see an interruption in our day. Sometimes when we see people in need, we see a lost cause. Sometimes we see people who we believe are consequences of their own laziness or poor decision-making. Sometimes when we see people in need, we see a danger or we see a threat. Do you see a person made in the image of God in whose image you are also made? You know, regardless of your natural affinity toward them or your natural attraction toward them, do you see a fellow image bear the Samaritan did and then moved his heart toward him? It's all a person with immediate felt physical needs. And so he showed mercy in a very tangible way. He wasn't just moved in his heart. He wasn't just convicted and feeling guilty, but he responded with a merciful deed. Now, what were those deeds? 
Well, there are so many that in ways, ways in which we can respond, but we at least see seven in this passage. And the first thing that we see is physical presence. Simply put, the man, the Samaritan, it says, went to him. That's such a big thing. I think we who have people around us all the time and people who don't avoid us, we don't understand what it's like when people run away from us. Because everyone is avoiding this man in need like he was infected, but the Samaritan drew near to him with his presence. You know, mercy begins with very simply. Mercy begins with showing up and moving toward a person. Simply being with them. It's so countercultural when people tend to walk away, move away, run away from those in need. The man simply shows up and he's present. Second thing is involvement. He got involved. The man's problem became his own problem. And because of that, he got his hands dirty. We're told that he didn't simply see him, acknowledge him, this is a man made in God's image, and then walk away. He got involved. It says that he began pouring on oil and wine. He bound up his wounds. He was wiping him. He was cleaning him. And this involvement was more than recognizing the issue. It was more than feeling bad. It was identifying with the man, participating, getting involved. Third, we see he provided transportation. This was a 17-mile journey along a windy, rocky road. Most likely the man was riding, the Samaritan was riding a donkey. He sees this man in need, and what does he do? He puts instead the man in need on his own animal, meaning he would have to walk the rest of the way. And he provided simple transportation. Fourth, he provided shelter. It says here that he brought him to an inn and took care of him. You know, there are a lot of ways that we can provide in mercy. I mean, how, how else, what could the Samaritan have done? Oh, he's out in the sun. He's dehydrated. So he could have pulled the body to where there's shade, left a bottle of water, patted it on the back and say, best of luck, friend, and left. And that would have been merciful. But what does he do? He takes him to an inn. He makes sure that there's a roof over his head and food in his mouth. He took care of him. Fifth, he provided financially. We read here, it says, he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you. The man's generosity was radical. You see, it was already radical, his mercy, because he didn't know who he was. So that's one, that's one aspect of radical generosity, going toward him. He didn't know who he was. But secondly, he didn't know how much it was going to cost him. There were so many unknowns in his display of mercy. In fact, he not only didn't know how much it was going to cost, he didn't know if this guy was going to repay him in any way. And the thing is, sometimes being repaid, we don't even need to be repaid uh, financially if we buy something for somebody or give something. Sometimes we just want to be repaid in appreciation. Or sometimes we just want acknowledgement. What if that he did all this for this Jew, the Jew woke up, saw the Samaritan and spit in his face? What if the Jew woke up, went to the innkeeper, said, what happened? The innkeeper explained the Samaritan brought you and he started cursing the Samaritan and said, I would have rather been left for dead than treated and helped by this enemy of mine. You see, this man had no idea. The Samaritan had no idea how he would respond. This man would respond to his generosity, but it didn't matter. He gave radically, sacrificially, mercifully. Third, he did, or six, he did a visitation. He says to the innkeeper, I will repay you when I come back. 
Right? The man obviously had a life. He couldn't stay by him by, you know, the whole time. But he promised a visitation. Right? It wasn't a one and done deal. It wasn't checklist. I did my act of mercy for today. Pat myself on the back. I feel like a good person. No, but he comes back. He continues to show mercy. He does a follow-up. He visits him. And seventh is time. You know, by promising to come back, he was promising to sacrifice more time. He had already lost time in helping him the first time. His life had already been disrupted, but he was willing to do it again. And sometimes I think for some people, this speaks more powerfully and more um, heavily than the finances. Because for some of us, time is the most difficult currency to give to another person. Time is the most difficult thing to be generous with. Because I know people who have many resources financially, and so they give but they won't give her their time. I also know people who have very little financially and give so fast sacrificially and they won't give of their time because time is the only currency that cannot be replenished. You can give and give and give and work and work and save and save and make more money. If you give and give and give your time, you will never get it back. Once spent, always gone. And so sometimes we hold to our time. Oh, I can write a check. I can give financially, but I'm not going to go there and help. I'm not going to pray for that. That's time. Here we see the Samaritan serving very tangibly and practically in at least these seven kinds of ways. And maybe some of these ways are ways that you can begin thinking about. Who in your life? What organizations you're familiar with? What needs are in front of you? Now, just a quick note here. As we think about mercy as a Christian I think sometimes people feel uncomfortable because as a Christian, you think, well, mercy is something that anybody can do. Non-Christians do mercy. Don't we, isn't our call to share the gospel? And therefore they think, well, mercy, you know, everyone can do that. Why are we spending so much time on it? Well, you know what? I want to say this. Mercy isn't less spiritual because it ministers only to the physical and felt needs of a person. You know why mercy is very spiritual? Because mercy is obedience to our God who tells us to love our neighbor. You see, whether or not we're sharing the gospel in it or not, doesn't mean it's spiritual or not. It's spiritual because the Lord says, this is what I desire, that you love mercy, that you seek justice, that you walk humbly with me. This is what I desire, that you go and do likewise. And so friends, meeting someone's physical needs is not a less spiritual action than evangelizing or going on missions. It is equally important and close to the heart of God. Now all of this leads then to this second point. Mercy is the mark of a true Christian who has been shown mercy in Christ. And at the end of this story, verse 37, Jesus says, you go and you do likewise. If you understand my parable, you will go and you will do what I say. Do what? Show love neighborly love in tangible ways. You know, the Bible makes it very clear, not only here, but in other portions of scripture, that mercy is the mark of true saving faith. Let me just read for you two portions of scripture. The first is 1 John chapter 3, where the apostle John writes, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. And then again in James 2, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? 
So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You know, if you are a Christian and you have a desire to love God and love neighbor, then mercy cannot be far from your heart. A desire, a concern, a commitment to care for somebody else's physical material needs and respond with generous, merciful deeds cannot be far from you. And the reason is because if you are a Christian and you have experienced the power of the gospel, you have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ and the spirit of God lives in you, there's a transformative work in you. And that transformative work is not simply enough fuel for you to do an act of mercy or justice. It's not enough fuel for you to do two or three or four acts of mercy of justice. It is a transformative power by which you are changed so that your life is lived in mercy and justice. You see, because guilt can get you to do one or two or three or four acts of mercy and justice. Throwing up pictures of people in other countries who are hungry and have no clothes can, can, can move you to do a few acts of mercy and justice, but it's only the gospel. It's only this dynamic in Christ that will transform you to be that kind of person. And we see that at work here in this story. Now, we got to be careful because um, it's really easy to misread the story, to misunderstand the story. Because remember just generally, the story goes, um, Jesus, how do I get eternal life? Well, what are you called to do? Love neighbor. Okay, well, go do that. Who's my neighbor? Right, show mercy. Go and do likewise. So the connection is, how do I get eternal life? Well, go and do likewise. Go and show mercy. And it sounds like that's legalism. Merit-based, performance-based. If you show mercy, then you will have eternal life. But that's actually not how the story is supposed to be understood. Let me clarify for you, because remember that the man asked Jesus, Um, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus says, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Now, when Jesus asked for a clarification, it's not like Jesus forgot what the law is. Jesus wrote the law. He knows very well it is. He asked the man, what's written in the law? How do you read it? Because he wants the guy to finally admit, wow, I can't obey God's law at all. And once he would admit that, then Jesus would have said, well, let me show you how. Here's my mercy. But this man, his spiritual pride is such an issue. It gets in the way. And so Jesus has to tell a parable. So I'm going to retell uh, the story in in a different way. And uh, hopefully by this way, you can understand the dynamic better, right? And so uh, admittedly, I am making some some modifications to the story. I'm not adding to scripture, uh, just telling it maybe in a way that we can understand. So this is the Andrew Kim version. A man comes... Actually, here's a better way. A parent comes on behalf of a child and says to Jesus, Jesus, how can my child get into Harvard? And Jesus says, well, what are the requirements? And the parent says, well, I've went on the website. The requirements are a perfect SAT score, perfect AP scores, four-year varsity sports, four years of varsity sports in three uh, sports covering the three seasons. Uh, They have to be class president. They have to lead the county and community service. They need perfect grades for every quarter of every semester from elementary school to high school. And then Jesus responds, well, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will get into Harvard. And you would expect then a, a real humble parent to say, oh my goodness, that's impossible. How can anybody do that? Jesus, please help me. And then Jesus would go, well, I'm glad you asked for help. And he would help you. But that's not, but you know, if we're retelling the story, that's not what the parent does. The parent hears all that. Wow, okay. Okay, okay, I see it. Gotcha, gotcha, okay. So just one question. Jesus like, yes? You said perfect grade since elementary school, but is that beginning with first grade or kindergarten? 
Jesus would look at the person and like, are you kidding me? You've totally missed the point. You're asking for clarification when you realize that your kid has failed in every single category in the first place. You see, the lawyer is asking Jesus, well, how do I get in? Jesus is saying, well, what does the law require? Love God, love your neighbor, love him with everything that you have. And Jesus is saying, go and do likewise. And the guy's supposed to say, well, Jesus, I don't, I can't. But what does the man do? He says, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Well, who's my neighbor? As if he could obey any of it. And what he's failing to realize is that he needs God's mercy, that he can't obey fully. And so when Jesus tells the parable of the Good Samaritan, you know what he's telling it? He's not telling the parable to be like, hey, lawyer, now go and be like the Good Samaritan. He's telling the parable because he's saying, dude, you're the one in need. You're the one who's helpless and beat and broken on the side of the road. Don't you realize it? You know, it really struck me uh, this week as I was preparing, and I love uh, getting to prepare the word every week because this story that you read over and over again, you like, oh, I know it. I can preach this. And you study it, and you receive new insights. And my new insight was this uh, this past week. Why didn't Jesus make the man who's beaten, beat up and on the side of the road, the mug man, why didn't he make him the Samaritan and then the merciful guy a Jew? Because if he did that, the story would make a lot more sense, right? Oh, there's a Samaritan, he's on the ground, and then this Jew came by and his Jew helped him. Look, the Jew had no uh, discrimination against the Samaritan. Look how loving he was. Go and be like him. Be merciful like that. That would make more sense to me. But Jesus intentionally flips it. He chooses instead to make the Jew the object of mercy, not the giver of mercy, And by doing this, Jesus is forcing this religious Jewish leader to see himself as the beaten, stripped man. He's showing the lawyer how helpless he is, how much mercy he needs. And it's into that a Samaritan comes. A Samaritan should not have helped that Jewish man. Why? Because the Jews hated, despised, rejected the Samaritans. And so when the Samaritan goes and helps him, the Samaritan is crossing every barrier in order to show neighborly love through mercy. And I think the lawyer hearing this parable, it would have struck him that the Jew deserved nothing from the Samaritan, but he was given everything from him. All these undeserved gifts of his time, involvement, presence, shelter, all of this. And by telling the parable, Jesus is saying to the man, do you understand that you're the one desperately in need? Jesus saying, you know how Jesus says, go and do likewise at the end. The only reason Jesus says that is because he's saying this. If you realize that you're the one desperately in need and you realize that you have received undeserved mercy like this, then you will go and do likewise. See, only when you experience mercy yourself, will you be able to truly love another person and see them with eyes of mercy. Only when you've been the recipient of a glorious kind of mercy yourself, will you ever be generous in your mercy toward others. It's not only true of the Lord, it's true of us. And we know that that power, that dynamic is at work in us for those who know the gospel. You see, it's the gospel that provides a transformation, a power in our lives, a dunamis, a power to transform us to go and do likewise. Because the parable is not told as a model and manual for how to live as a true and good Samaritan. The parable is told as a snapshot of Jesus Christ as the true and better Samaritan. And we as the ones in need. 
You cannot read the story and say, I must be like the Good Samaritan. You must read the story and say, I am the man in need. You see, remember this. The Jews treated the Samaritans. They hated the Samaritans, treated them with utter disregard. They despised them, hated them, rejected them. The man in need hated the one who came to help. How much more do we hate and despise and reject God? And yet he crossed every barrier to come get us. And there's a difference, of course. This man was left half dead on the road. He was clinging for his life. But when Jesus came to find us, we were already dead in our sins and in our trespasses until he gave us new life. You know, the Samaritan, he risked his life. He put himself in harm's way by helping the man. But Jesus didn't merely put himself in harm's way. He was sacrificed on our behalf, taken on our very sins. The Samaritan gets on his knees And through oil and water, he binds together the wounds of this man. But Jesus ultimately heals us by being wounded in our place on the cross. And whereas the Samaritan was willing to generously give and to pay whatever the denarii, Jesus generously gave of his whole life to cover our debt. You see, in every way, we are the ones in need of mercy, and Jesus is the one who offers us that mercy. That's where we begin. That's the gospel. And it's only that that's going to transform you, not to do one or two or three acts of mercy, but to live a life overflowing of mercy. It's only when that goes into your heart that then you look at, go and do likewise, and it's not this condemning law over you. How could I do that? But it becomes a joy, a delight, not duty. You see, at the end of the passage, Jesus is essentially just challenging the lawyer. If you really get this story, if you really get this parable, then one, you're going to stop seeing yourself as a Samaritan and you're going to see yourself as the man in need. Two, you're going to start seeing me as the Samaritan who has come to help you. And if you understand that every mercy you've received is undeserved and unmerited, then you can go and do likewise. You see, for us, the things that we hold on to Money, time, energy, safety, our convenience, our comfort. All of those things are the very things we hold on to because we believe they're the most important things to us, which is why we don't want to relinquish them and live a life of mercy and justice. But if we really believe that Christ has met our ultimate spiritual need to extravagant mercy he's shown to us, then all of these things we hold on to, we can begin to to let go of them. And we can begin to give generously because we've received so gloriously. So who and for what can you begin to show mercy? In what ways can you begin to engage in tangible acts of neighborly love? With whom can you be physically present in distress? With, with who, who doesn't have a voice or identity can you advocate for? With whom can you get involved with? With whom can you provide something as simple as, as transportation or shelter? In what ways can you help financially? Who can you visit in times of need and distress? In what ways can you give of your time to serve? We're going to hear of a, uh, from Deacon Dan a mercy report coming right after our service or right after our song of response, consider some of the ways, those are the dates, I'm going to set that aside. I'm going to give to that. I'm going to participate 
in those ways. Because friends, if you have been shown glorious mercy in Christ, that will activate you and spur you on to show generous mercy toward others. That's the kind of Christians we want to be. That's the kind of church we want to be. One committed to mercy and justice. Join me in prayer.